Let me open us in a word of prayer today. Father God, we just uh, come um, and rejoice in your presence. Father, we just come in the with hearts that are just open to you today. Father, we come in the fullness of Christ. Uh, we're so privileged to be in your word today, uh, so privileged to be uh, able to uh, share in it, uh, Father, the truth of your promises. Father, that so uh, vividly describes um, humanity in its depravity and also the magnificence of Christ in victory that Christ accomplished on the cross. Father, it's so fitting in this past few weeks as we have worshipped you in the celebration of Passover and Easter that um, it's appropriate as we would even consider um, our own lives in fullness of redemption that we've received as believers in Christ. So I just do pray that uh, your spirit will guide us and lead us through uh, this continued discussion that we would glean in personal application uh, the how we individually can navigate through the suffering and to use looking to the ultimate example in Jesus Christ. And so I pray now that you commit this time to you and it would be glorified in our time of sharing in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. And in the, in the handouts that we have there is... I'm going to pick back up with a quick little review of the passage beginning at the beginning, and we'll take us through as far as we can through today, hopefully um, beyond verses uh, 3 to 5, and even to get a glimpse of verse of 6 today. Our objective is, is, is we would have this topic of navigating unjust suffering, is that what does God want us to learn and what does He want us to do? And I've added this learning aspect of it, but do we? Because as Peter would write this letter to these persecuted believers that are essentially, it's a, it's a passage of endurance. They were enduring through very uh, trying uh, persecution, both uh, verbally as well as physically. And as I, I shared last time that we had met, is that as we look at the, the, the passage and the momentum that it's building, and this uh, passage is starting back in verse chapter 3, verse 18, through verse 6 of this, this focus on Christ and Christ's suffering um, into, unto death, is that was Peter preparing his readers for ultimately that level of martyrdom? where up to this point they were alive, they were still but yet experiencing persecution. And I believe that that may have been part of this as we, as we lead up to it because it is also a passage of great hope that focuses on the triumph of Christ at the end of chapter 3 and then again brings us full circle back to verse 6 that brings us to ultimately this refocus on the hope of eternal life through Christ to these believers, even unto death, is the, the fret. And so our objective is, is, is to, shifting from last time, is, is it's going to focus in these passages today into our conduct. And maintaining a proper conduct in suffering requires that Christians maintain a Christ-like attitude 
living for the present in God's will and knowing that they will live in eternity in His presence. And these aspects of just simply pulling them out of the passage itself and combining them into one objective is here, is that it's going to be very practical and we're going to see some examples of is that he's going to take them back as they look at their lifestyle. And like one of the questions I had asked, you know, whenever we get to this place of discussion was is that, you know, it's evident that many of Peter's readers are coming from some pagan lifestyle. And because of this reference we would see in this first century as far as these very specific sins that were described there and this call for them to turn from that. So as we look at the passage, is let's start, if we could have someone just read it for us, and you can read it up here or from your, your Bible, wherever you want. To read, if someone would be willing to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And this is the New American Standard version of that to, to get us back on track with our passage. Therefore, since Christ has suffered, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, to live the rest of the time in the flesh longer for the lusts of God. Time already passed is sufficient for you to having pursued a lust, drunkenness, carousing, drink parties, and abominable idolatries. All of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in time you, which the living and the dead. The gospel has for this purpose been preached, those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they live in the spirit according to the will of God. Thanks. For, uh, in this passage, the therefore, as I've circled in there, is this referencing again, going back up to verses 3 to 18 to 22 where he is, again, focusing specifically on how it started where, with a very similar start in verse 18, that Christ had suffered in the flesh. So there is this continuation of that. And this primary theme that we see is this call to be armed for suffering and to be armed yourselves also with this same purpose. And I circle this because I believe it is this primary practical thing that I want us to draw from the passage, but also into our lives. In other words, answering the questions that it's you're armed for the purpose of suffering. What does that mean to you? Okay, We're going to look at it specifically as he addresses that question more or less to his readers by saying again, the question is, to be armed for the purpose of suffering, what does it mean? It focuses, first of all, on this attitude of Christ as this premier and pivotal ex, uh, example. It focuses on, it means to, to live according to the will of God. We see this transformation from the past. And then finally, this hope of eternal life. And so these four were sort of last time that we met, we started to, to bring this full circle. I just wanted to throw up a couple of contextual things that everything in those previous verses it focused on a preparation. A preparation for Peter's readers, for those believers, for you and I as it relates to suffering and the enduring aspect of suffering. Because what we all would agree is that at, circumstantially suffering is different for every individual. And so therefore, what could be the exhortation, depending on that, that would bring us to this, how do we suffer well? We had seen it building up to this point that continued to his readers that it was recognizing clearly that there were various trials that were um, confronting them. 
And so this key word in that verse, which was here, was to arm yourselves. Arm yourselves, which was this word that we have in this picture of it. It's, it's this term that is this putting on of armor itself. It is arming yourselves with weapons. And so here, this picture is for a preparation for battle. So part of that is this aspect of endurance that we will build towards. Peter provides those believers with those perspectives that we talked about earlier. From that is, is that once we have the perspectives, is that what helps us to, and motivates us where we can be then strong and bring suffering into perspective and potentially even unto martyrdom. Because remember, as we talked about, is, is that we're here. But how do we prepare our minds for death? As I think about that of often, is that there's, there's a preparation that needs to be um, processed, gone through for each of us. And this, under, this perspective, this understanding, this attitude of Christ, the will of God, the transformation, and the hope of eternal life, was, we believe to be this overall arching type of theme that we see. Now as we pick up from where we left off some last week, we started looking at verse 1. And in verse 1 it says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So I want to take it and break it down into two parts of this, starting with, first of all, the suffering for the flesh. The cross of Christ is the ultimate proof that Christ endured his greatest suffering and dying under divine judgment. In verses three, chapter three, verse eighteen, the just he died the just for the unjust. Yet therefore he also accomplished for believers this greatest triumph at the in verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this victory over the forces of evil as highlighted in verses 22 where it says he has gone into heaven and that's at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves. So he connects us in this passage starting in verse 1 of chapter 4 with the key summation. Going back chapter 3, verse 18, and I want to just read for you Isaiah 53.10, that Christ suffered in the flesh and that He died in fulfilling of God's redemptive plan. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. Isaiah 53.10. Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23. It says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So from eternity past, when you look at that, from eternity past, God had predetermined that Jesus would die an atoning death as part of his overall preordained redemption plan itself came in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. That's exactly Romans 8, 3. So therefore, Peter commands 
his readers to arm themselves with armor, with weapons. And this form of the verb, this uh, form, the noun form of the verb is used to several passages. It refers specifically to these weapons themselves. When you see this word of arming yourselves. Hi, George. So what are believers called to arm themselves with in verse 1? What are we called to arm ourselves with? <coughs> this result, this same attitude. This yes, it is this same purpose. It is this same, uh, same attitude. It is the same thought. It is the same principle itself. In other words, as Christ, be willing to die knowing it produces the greatest victory. Let's take a second and let's open up to Philippians chapter 2. It's a great passage. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And I want you, as we read this passage, I want you to think again, when we say is that Peter is calling, the, he says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. In other words, what this same in mind, this same intent. Philippians chapter 2, we really have to read the whole part of that passage. Starting in verse 5, read uh, through verse 8. Someone want to read that? It keeps going. It's wonderful. It keeps going on and on. But I just wanted to get to this place here. And when he's starting at five, it gets there. Is you see this? You see? Doesn't it sound the same? Let this mind be in you. It's like for the same purpose. Arm yourselves with this same purpose. This is how it's described. And that is that Christ, in obedience, submitted Himself even to the point of death. Why? Because God will highly exalt Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Be willing to die knowing it produces ultimately this greatest victory in Christ. And so as we go back to this theme, or in other words, as Peter is writing this, and for you and I, is, is that we have to have a mind shift. And the mind shift is, is to, to Christ. It's ultimately that example. To be of the same mind as Christ, to be of the same purpose, of the same thought. And that's what Paul is writing to the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Be willing to die. Second Timothy 1.10 Jump in. Second Timothy 1.10 says, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death and brought life, willing to die, knowing it produced the greatest victory, life. It is better to suffer for Christ than to suffer with the world. Better to suffer for Christ than to suffer with the world. And on this comment right here, as Peter starts to transition into verses 3 and 4, he gives us this very vivid depraved perspective of the world, what it looks like, sin as described. And so in preparation for the suffering, and in preparation ultimately for what would be ahead for these, 
arm for suffering is to put on the armor. Ephesians 6, verse 11. Do you know the verse by heart? Put on what? The whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the evil of one of the devil. Standing firm. It is putting on this full armor. And I think, Cheryl, last time you talked about the various things that these are. As believers, do we just put on some of the armor? And that we would, like we go going like, oh gosh, I, I think I'm going to go into a situation tomorrow that I better put on a little bit more. It could be a tough fight tomorrow. Always. Yes. And I, and I believe that what happens is sometimes we don't think of it that way. Our guard is down. We're not. We don't look at this whole armor. This is this attacking that is constantly that we get embattled with. And so therefore that's this, Paul is saying, is to put on this whole armor of God. And they're not perfect. And look, the one is always putting things up against us. This bad. are not armored beforehand. Have no time to put on the armor. Open that door. They warm in here. In order to rightly respond, we have rightly diagnose. We just think we fall into a situation. ourselves in, you know, if God is sovereign, how does all that work? Helps me a lot. That's the question. Like, where if I can't, if I can't ascertain, never underestimate um, the, the schemes of the evil one, and. The, the phrase of the armor will find the chink in our armor. It's, each of us, we have those chinks in the armor. Uh, uh, take a look at that passage. I, I really like Second Corinthians ten, verses three and four, because it what it speaks to is the fact is is that how do we the, the fact of what we're, what are we dealing with in, in this warfare, the, the battle itself. Someone got Second Corinthians ten three four. Or though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. When you when you see that passage again, it speaks to the when you look at the weapons of the flesh itself are weak. But yet it is only those weapons, spiritually, that of God itself, as believers, is that that's the only armor that we can have to withstand and to be able to navigate through life itself. Because as what Peter is going to move us towards is, is he's going to have us think about our former lives in the flesh, what does it look like, as well as how you navigated through that in weakness. And yet, when you look at the fact at the end of chapter 3, there was this proclamation that was made in a spiritual dimension, which is happening all around us. We wrestle against what? Powers and principalities. It's happening around us. So I, I, I... I agree with you, concur on that, Mark. It is so significant when you think about the, this armor in that it is the only armor, that of God, that can bring us victory, spiritual victory.
be able to endure through whatever the suffering you're dealing with right now, as well as into the future. The war is about the number. Very interesting thing. He says it's the, uh, the how we really the crux of the get to the other side. Really don't know those moments other than God. I didn't really believe sitting in the whole camp army. We're, we're drinking and out there coming at us. Well, I, I think that that is that's exactly even one of the reference He's bringing them back to that, that realization because it's going to be a remembrance too of that both of your former life. So what are you pursuing? can't have two masters. So what are we pursuing? And then as it goes forward into this is that at death, there's no, can't reconcile, can't go back. And I believe that in here, as he talks about at the end of this passage, it is very clear judgment that is brings it to this final place where those that are even dead in Christ, those believers experience eternal life. Those that have did not believe the gospel during this time, they're judged. Peter is kind of providing this as an encouragement, but also as an exhortation to that. Um, in the New King James, it uses a little different words. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds. And I, I liked that reference just from the standpoint, again, that it, is, it, it contrasts um, flesh with, again, God. And that is exactly what we're going to see another contrast that he starts to build as he talks about, the, in this case, pursuing holiness or pursuing the lusts of men. Contrasted. Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter was not expressing something that was new to his readers. When we go back, if you could just take a second look at chapter 10 of Matthew, is that this is a uh, an important passage, I believe, that that his readers would have an understanding when he is make, making a statement that the Christ has suffered for uh, for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same purpose in mind. That means something to his readers, and I believe that it's a, it is not a new concept. Matthew chapter ten. Verse, verses 38 and 39. It's a very familiar passage. Someone just read it. Not take his cross and follow me as he of me. This is like for my sake. Okay, thanks, Ian. What, what does that mean? Found his life in the world, has lost his life, and life in this world has Christ. Okay. What else? Absolutely. It, it is about our focus. I just want to make a point. The point was is that it's, a, it's it, conceptually to his readers. To the readers of this, what does the cross mean in that culture? Suffering, humiliation, excruciating death. And so the point is, to his readers, we, uh, we understand that take up our cross, but so I'm just giving, I want to focus in on that word itself, is I believe to those readers it means exactly that: suffering to the extreme, potentially martyrdom to death, to death. So then, 
as we find application, when you read that, we sometimes, our minds, having the same mind as Christ, the same purpose, sometimes we just bring it to this level of just suffering. Kind of what Mark was saying is getting us to this level of understanding at a much deeper much deeper understanding. So that's why just the point is is that it was not new. Not new. Paul was armed. Just the one passage. I and I love First Corinthians fifteen thirty one. Uh, Paul just says, I die daily. He says, I die daily. Paul was I think we we talked about last time. I, I believe he he lived life when you just look at everything, he was like right on the edge. He just was always ready to die. And that he was, what, to live as Christ, to <laughs> die as gain. He was really always at that place of wanting the gain. And yet God had purpose for him to, as he continued to minister. So when we look at Jesus' teaching intent, it's similar to, to Peter's statement from the standpoint of here is, is that it is essentially this teaching in that continually is that it's a life of sacrifice in our ministry. It is a sacrifice in our giving ourselves unto Christ in the fullness of that. Paul did not view any types of weaknesses as something that was crippling to him. In fact, he always viewed it as a thing that would strengthen him. The opposite of that. Um, often thought about is uh, the risks that, that Paul would take and the risks that even believers would take. Why would you take a risk unless you knew it was true? I believe that's where Paul was. He was willing to take the risk to be on that edge because it was true, even unto death. You know, if you just slide over in this section of Hebrews, this is the, the, uh, the Hall of Faith chapter. I mean, you just start, and if you, if you just start at the end of this, at the end of that chapter, what happens? How the writer of Hebrews describes these martyrs, thousands of martyrs throughout history, they armed themselves. Hebrews 11, just thinking 36, it says, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, suffering. Yes, also chains and imprisonment, suffering. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, death. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, humility, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And yet, many of them not even seeing the promise. And so there is this parallel that we would, even for us as believers, is to have that same arming that we see even of many of those in, in just reading through <coughs> Hebrews 11. It's amazing. <coughs> Courage and the uncompromising aspect of their commitment to follow God. Why? Because of the promise and, and the assurance of, the, of that. Regardless, regardless of what Ever the earth can do to us, can bring at us. In other words, the outcome of the earthly outcome, more or less. So, what I'm going to do is, is I want to take these these attitudes and give you some reminder type points. So, in this first one, as we look in the passage to kind of bring out this closure of this attitude of Christ, 
is we're going to have these phrases. I mean, if you on your handout, it's just sort of circle these phrases as practicals uh, summaries. There's like going to be six of these we're going to draw from these passages. So at the end of verse one is this focused on this added to Christ to be armed for the purpose of suffering. What does it mean? It means that we have clothed ourselves with this attitude of Christ to be of the same mind. It is this putting on that we see Christ in this picture. So when we see this first application thing for you, to be armed for the purpose of suffering, and in your handout I kind of just made it a little italic type of uh, summary there, so you can circle it, whatever, highlight it. So the first one is that we would clothe ourselves with the attitude of Christ. Hi, John. We can safe we can face the suffering and the death with the same attitude because when it comes, they will experience victory over sin. Now, in the passage, as I wanted to take a second because this was a challenging part of the passage. It says in there, it says that Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with this same, with this same mind. Okay, we're, we got that down. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Who is this he who has suffered? Just some thoughts. I come up with three. Potential. What do you... Okay? First one is, could be Christ himself. Could be Christ himself. And a great reference passage to this is, as a marker here, is Romans 6. And open you up there because two of, my, two of the perspectives that would be drawn from Romans 6. Okay, so again, let me, let me read it. The, the first Peter passage, and using the response there, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, we know that Christ never sinned. Okay? But, was sin attacking Christ all of his earthly life? Yes. There was a cessation of sin at Christ's death and His resurrection. It stopped at that point. He has ultimately the victory of that. Um, Look at Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 6. Someone read verses 6 to 10. That will cover the first two options. You see the, the parts, parts of that where it talks about is, is that no longer, Christ died in that, and that no longer would there be any death, would have no dominion over him. It has stopped at that point. And if the what I'm going to get to in this is that we're going to have some options here, but then the affirming truth to these is that ultimately is that this it brings us back to the victory that Christ. There's going to be a direct application for us. So a second option is the one who suffered is the believer. Right? It is the believer in the same chapter, Romans 6, specifically it says in verse 7 there, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The he in this, he who had suffered, is the believer. And then option three, consideration, the one who suffered are dead believers. When we die, as in this physical life, we are, as believers, 
we are freed from sin. We are, it has stopped. In other words, it has ceased. We have ceased from sin. We're not going to sin anymore. Okay? Now, from this, as I want you to, when you go back to the passage, and then I'm going to go through the three affirming truths to this again. Because again, the passage is saying is that, that um, we have the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay? So let's go back through these three affirming truths to this aspect of being, where it says that it ceased from sin. It means, essentially, that it is done with sin, or that the power of sin is broken. We saw that specifically referenced to Christ. We specifically saw that as those that are in Christ, as believers, that we are freed from sin. And then we know the truth that as believers in Christ, when we die, we are freed from sin. We are ceased from sin. The first one is that the power of sin was broken specifically by Christ in His death and resurrection, in that Romans passage. No longer does death have dominion over Him. The cross work finished it. It is finished, was His exact words. It's done, once for all. And so therefore, there was this cessation of sin at that point. I know, I know that you and I struggle. We're all sinners. It's what we all have in common in this room. Okay? We're all sinners. For all have sinned. No one is exempt from that. Christ is the only one that is sinless. But yet, it's said that He took on sin for us. The second one, the affirming truth, that through our union, it said, with Christ, that He who has died has been freed from sin. In other words, that resolving that we are willing to suffer indicates that we have ceased to let sin dominate in our lives. So when you look at it, let's, let's go back to the passage and in, in, um, look at the passage back in, in Peter. So what Peter is saying is there is that Christ died, suffered and He died. He was resurrected. He took on the penalty of death and sin no longer dominates. Death no longer dominates. And it says in the, in the Romans passage, because we are in Christ... We identify with that is that now as believers, we have the ability to, and we, in this case, sin no longer has dominion over us. Practically, we have to have that reminder, don't we, about that. That's where it gets to be challenging. And Paul, he struggled with that reminder. He just, it was something he was struggling with constantly. There was his this groaning, as I would just say, it's, it's this groaning we see within Scripture is that our bodies, this unredeemed flesh, struggles all of our life with sin. But yet, as believers, in our union with Christ, we have been freed. And ultimately, we experience the freedom throughout our life in sanctification. Yet, isn't it also true, though, that when we die, we've stopped sinning. We'll no longer be sinning. The third affirming truth, that believers can face suffering and death knowing that they will enter into eternity free from sin's influences and effects. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
verses 42 and 43. It says, So also, in the resurrection of the dead is sown a perishable body. It is raised imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I love the Second Corinthians. Someone read, look up Second Corinthians five, uh, verse one. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse two, George. Sorry. For in this tent. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Okay, do you see this picture? And as as believers, that when we experience suffering and death, is that ultimately this is this our bodies are we're struggling, we're groaning, and we're groaning ultimately to be clothed in this righteousness, in this perfection, in this holiness that we will have where. In heaven, and I like, I like this picture of this in that passage because it describes literally that indeed our house we groan, our bodies are groaning this unredeemed aspect of flesh that we just wrestle with constantly. Paul just he just kept going at this. I think Paul gave us so many examples where he continued to in Romans seven, you know that. Uh, he's just doing the things he doesn't want to do, and that he is wretched man that I am. It's he kept focusing again on this unrede- this this flesh. We will always be embattled with that. So these three, as you look at going back, the cessation of sin itself was accomplished ultimately by Christ. As believers, you and I, we experience this victory ultimately as well as experientially here because of our identification and our union with Christ. We have been freed from sin. And ultimately, that we will escape all of sin, influences and effects. And so those believers even that have died physically in this lifetime, that's what they're experiencing now, is glory. That heavenly house. That's there. It's a great picture. No armor. We're completely vulnerable. Worldly armor, it has gaping holes of vulnerability. Sin can get in a lot of places. We put on heavenly armor, still worldly armor. It has to be inspected. It has to be polished. It has to be worked with. Hmm. Eat this vulnerability. Only when we die, then we put on the perfect armor. Skin, the sin has no way to penetrate. That's the perfect armor. There is no way to penetrate that armor. Sin has nowhere to go. I don't know. I think uh, I think that the whole armor of God is complete up on earth, but it's our flaws that are those who wear the armor that allow that sin to come in. Not so much the flaws of the armor itself, but the flaws of the armor and allow that out of our weakness, not the weakness of God. Because God gives us earth. We have His Spirit. Armor is perfect to wear. In, in that. Um liken it to the the second Corinthians passage as far as the, the the contrast of that armor in the flesh so what you're you're alluding to is ourselves as as well as opposed to that of of the mighty God himself 
which is the perfection of that in itself. It is this wearer. And remember, this is an exhortation to put on and to clothe ourselves. And this is what we're embattled with because our flesh is constantly... We're not subjecting ourselves in the fully to that. Uh, sin does, does not exist. <laughs> exactly. That, that you're, it's, it's a, it's, this is this, a truth of what is... Sin has ceased. It's done. I mean, is there sin no. In, in the armor itself, is in the term it is there is for our earthly battle. In other words, what God has graciously given us is that in itself. has totally equipped us with what is necessary to be able to thwart that. Our flesh is constantly embattled against that. You know, it's uh, it's sort of like the, the the vision that I have is is the way I would liken it to is that um, that soldier itself might have armor on some of it at all times as a soldier, and so therefore when they know they're going to go into battle is when they would grab the heavy weapons and they would equip themselves a little bit more. It goes back to the comment in the word that in that Ephesians is the whole armor of God, not parts of it. That exposes what you were referencing in here is that the wearer is that I'm, I don't need all that. Even from the standpoint of the, 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 how the, uh, the weapons itself that we have in Ephesians 6 is that how do we use those? It, their defense itself, it's the word, is going to be that sword itself that's going to thwart false doctrine and teaching. So I, I think that when we um, kind of tie it all together on this thing is that we look at what um, what what are Peter's readers struggling with and what do you and I struggle with. Here is this truth. When we say this arming ourselves against suffering, I'm going to submit that we're all at different degrees of that. So in other words, we're not fully putting on all the armor. And so that's why believers even struggle with suffering. Let's build on that though as we go. The, he, the Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, you're familiar with this passage. Um, we've, we've seen this, that, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The perspectives of this preparation for suffering. And so the second application point under this is to be armed for the purpose of suffering means we have parted ways with our past life of sin. There is this ceased from sin in that affirming truth that we are freed from sin. And so therefore, as believers, if we are going to arm ourselves, the purpose of suffering is that we have to uphold that truth and that promise tightly and to recognize that we've parted ways with that. Um, and I think that's where we, where the, we struggle because of the flesh. Since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same mind. He suffered in this flesh, he ceased from sin. That he no longer should live in the, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. To be armed, the third application point, to be armed for this purpose of suffering means that we are to engage in the pursuit of God's will and not our own. 
pursuit of God's will and not our own. I want you to notice a connection here. A connection where we see in verse 1 is this, Christ had suffered. Arm yourselves with this same mind. The one who suffers in the flesh is broken from sin. Why? Because of what Christ did. So in our identification with Him. So that He might live the rest of His life for the will of God and not for the sinful desires of men. This is the contrast. There is the will of God. There is this, the sinful desires of men. And ultimately, in this contrast, is you're choosing the Master. There's, there's not two. There's only one. Are we pursuing, as believers, are we pursuing in the, our time on this earth for the will of God or a combination of both? The sinful desires of the flesh. What does this rest of time mean, do you think? As we're in this hot pursuit of God's will in our life, it will be naturally wanting. But when we let around and pursue our own will, God's will, that's when we're going to go back to where things were built. It's, there's this natural alignment of why I do what I do. When I'm in that place of doing that for the glory of God, then I'm not going to be sinful. Yeah. That's, I think it's important to call that out. Yeah, it, that's why, to me, it's like this, this second truth in here is really when you look at it um, contextually, is that he's going to transition into all of this past stuff. As a really, it's a reminder for them that they're not, they're not mixing. They're not going back. Because they have, they've, they're believers. They have, they've put on the new. They got rid of the old self. And so you're, exa- you're right, Mark, but that's why in, in this is I've, I've just, because as you read that, it's a, it's a very challenging part of this, ceasing from sin. What we know is, is as believers, we're sinners. But at the same time, we can experience victory over that in this sanctification, in this pursuit of God and His will, which is clearly here. It is obedience to God's Word. When we are subjecting ourselves to the Spirit. It, this is, it, begins, it manifests ourselves in victory over sin. With conviction. Is that we, we, it, our lifestyle changes. In this description here, from the standpoint of ultimately, is it's, we see this picture as the passage develops of this believer that has changed his lifestyle and is actually a surprise to those that maybe ran with him. It says, why are you no longer running with us? In fact, they get upset about it. There's a change in the life. And that life can only change, can only be the result of this break, brokenness of sin that Christ has accomplished on the cross. And our identification with him in that union on the cross that we can now stop. And ultimately, to that doctrinal truth, until we are with Christ is when we are totally cease, literally. But until then, in salvation, we have the mind of Christ that's free. Yeah, it's it's a reflection of now, looking at past sins, but also at future sins, and ultimately, that positional truth of being with Christ and Finally, having that full redemption of the 
itself, the fullness of that, experiencing it, so we are no longer wrestling with sin when we're with Him. And so, uh, to His readers, I'm going to look at it from how I, how I viewed these, is that, to your point, Mark, is that I, I, f- I felt as though that He's like just preparing them for something very physical that was coming next. Potentially even martyrdom and persecution unto death and preparing them for <laughs> this joy that was set before them in Christ. In other words, ultimately that. At the same time, for you and I as believers, this truth here is the practical application part of it for you and I. You're not facing death today, tomorrow. And so we might not be able to connect to it. But yet at the same time, we also know of believers that have passed and they are truly experiencing that freedom. They have cessation of sin in their life. And, and that they have armed themselves for that and experienced it at death to the believer. Any other questions or thoughts on that? A tough, a tough part of that passage without question, but keeping the focus is that as he now transitions to talking about this life, the past life for them, and he wants to keep them focused going forward. And how they have to deal with the suffering that, that they're going to experience. Application-wise, it's the same for you and I. I joy, whether it was suffering or good times, find joy in Christ if things are... But then it's suffering, I think we... Christ was the Son of God and took the long view, short view, suffered joyously because he knew he knew what the result would be. It, at that very point, it was the, it was the moment of separation, of, of this taking on. I mean, of this sin. It was just that at that moment. I think it, it reflected that separation. We're separated. Absent Christ's death, we would have no no other means. Christ clearly knew he that was all part of this those passages said to his predetermined plan to come and to die. The very moment that he came into this world, it was only for one purpose, and that was to die. It's the passage, you know, when you look at his earthly ministry, that we kept struggling with that message. We mean his own disciples and all. Every, we, that's what we struggle with is that we're not looking at it that way. When he says in, in, in Luke 9, 51, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, means that he was determined to go and die, because that was the plan. And I think you're, I think you're making a, a very clear statement that how we struggle, because we're not focused on that. We're not. We're living today. It's a good point. When, when, uh, when Peter writes that uh, we should no, no longer uh, live the rest of this time in the flesh, in a, in a previous chapter, verses 1, verse 17, it's, he specifically defines that again. He says that, um, And if you call, call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. 
it is this rest of your life. So for the rest of our lives, we are to live for the will of God. Arm yourselves, same mind. Armed for the purpose of suffering means we engage in the pursuit of God's will. Now, as believers, we're about God's will. Okay? I think a great passage that helps us with this is Romans 12 too. Which, what does that look like? What is His will for us? You know the passage by heart, don't you? Romans 12, verse 2. What would be how the passage starts off? What, is, what would be some very practical things that reflect His will? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the, the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. First one is to surrender yourself. First application is what is His will? It says that we are to be a living sacrifice. Surrender yourself to God as a living sacrifice. We are about God's will. We are to engage in spiritual worship. We are to engage in spiritual worship. Romans Therefore, I beseech you by the mercy of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a holy and acceptable God, which which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world. This this aspect of worship. The third is to be transformed. We see in verse 2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is, that is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. Ephesians 6, 5 uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it, talk, it references, to, says, to be bondservants, quote, doing the will of God. And so as believers, we are about God's will. And, and what is it? We would be spiritual, submitting ourselves, sacrificing, engaging in worship, and transformed of our minds. This is the, the practical aspect of what it's begin to look like in doing the will of God. Now, in that passage, Peter draws a he draws a line in verse two, and kind of the question is, is about who's these two? Who's your master? It says, "Whose army are you in, and who is your master?" And so, the way it's described, and I'll just take two passages: Ephesians two, verses three, and I'll read the first couple. It's Ephesians two, verse three says, "Among them, we too all formerly lived." in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. And as Peter draws this line, he says, No longer for the lusts of men, but... So it's... This but describes this contrast. So one group lives for themselves and does their own thing. They kind of just do their thing. It is a self-interest that drives that. As opposed to the other group that lives for Christ and does God's will. It does God's thing. There is only one or the other. A group that lives for themselves and does their own thing or does lives for Christ and does God's will. And what happens is is that we vacillate sometimes within the flesh and this is where we struggle. Right? But Peter is telling his believers to arm themselves with this level of commitment to do the will of God to abandon 
their former sins. Okay, I think, Mark, this is going to be my good break point right here. Because as we go forward with this in verses 3 to 5, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these six words, okay? Just as a heads up. As far as um, what those six words, when you look through them, it simply just describes the the pursuit of the unregenerate, okay? And what I'm going to, when you look at those, you may say, well, boy, none of that happened in my life. Or maybe I was saved when I was a young little, little boy, and so that was never a part of my life. I'm just indicating that as Peter uses these descriptions, I believe it has to do much of the fact that many, there were converts that had come from a pagan lifestyle that he was essentially referencing to many of the characteristics that were reflected of that. So we'll pick up with, um, with verses 3 to 5 um, next week, and we'll conclude, and maybe, Mark, I'll hand it off to you at some point next week. <laughs> Stay tuned. Are we okay with the how everything's going? The time frame and uh, appreciate uh, your patience through this. At the same time, um, I like the dialogue. It was a, it was a tough passage. There's, a, there's really some tough things in this passage. Going back to the chapter three and this, and it's hard to go through it quickly. But also to allow, I believe clearly there is some good application for us in these summary types of points. So. Uh, We'll pick this up next week. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, we're, um, we stand humbled before you. And uh, we just pray as we've considered uh, this call for us as believers to have the mind of Christ and to have this same purpose. And yet we can confess um, that we struggle with that. And yet we thank you for the victory that we have ultimately in Christ. <coughs> Your forgiveness that we have, we proclaim through Him, and by faith that we too will experience the promise freed. Father, we just know that uh, Your love for us is is beyond words, and yet uh, we just thank You for this great, great privilege that we can be in the fellowship of Your Word, and that it is our heart's desire, Father, that we would submit ourselves to You, and that we'd worship You, and that we would. Uh, devote ourselves in commitment into recognizing that it is only through what Christ has accomplished in, in our lives that has, gives us the ability to be freed from that bondage. And we proclaim that um, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we just thank you for our time of sharing today and pray your, as your, today is that uh, we go to the service today that tr- your truth will be proclaimed and Father, that you will be honored and that even some of those that, that are in our service today would even come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ in the truth. And we just ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.